Tonight on Arena, the latest edition of The Stinging Fly pays tribute to The Bell and the RTE Concert Orchestra with jazz versions of some of Radiohead's greatest hits. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Founded in 1940 by Sean O'Fuelon, the Bell was one of the 20th century, 20th century Ireland's most important literary and cultural magazines, focusing primarily on short story fiction. It ran for 14 years up until 1954, and in that time had various subtitles, including a survey of Irish life, a magazine of creative fiction, and a magazine of Ireland today. The Bell, in many ways, ran self-consciously against the grain of the dominant cultural thought during that period, encouraging writers to explore more contemporary aspects of Irish society. Give voice to writers like Elizabeth Bowen, James Plunkett, Valmont Kearns, David Marcus and many, many others. Now the stinging flies in many ways, the stinging fly rather, in many ways, contemporary successor to the bell has revisited some of the content from that 14-year period and asked contemporary writers like Nicole Flattery, Danielle McLaughlin, Danny Denton and others to select short stories from the period and write their own reflections on those pieces, those reflections and those short stories have been brought together in a publication called The Writer's Torch, Reading Stories from the Bell, joined by one of the editors of this new uh, publication, Elgita Hoker, along with one of the contributors, Anne Enright, who has written her own reflection on a short story by Sean O'Fuelon himself, the original editor of The Bell. Um, First of all, maybe talk a little bit, Elke, if you would, about The Bell itself, that journal and its place in, in Irish society in that very interesting mid-20th century period. Yes, I think it was a really important journal at the time. Um, O'Fuelan really wanted Irish literature, Irish culture, intellectual life to open up to the outside world more, not to be backward-looking, not to be, you know, Gaelic revival, going back to Irish past and myths and so on. So he really wanted to forge a literature for the future. Um, and I think... He focused especially on the short story because I thought mm. it would be the genre in which Irish writers could excel and do better than the British, I suppose. <laughs> and we wanted to do that, I yes, guess, at right that too. particular point in time, maybe if not at other times and maybe all the time. You're, you're a lecturer in English literature at the University of Leuven in, in Belgium, but with a specific interest in Irish literature. So d- does the bell really stand out? within that, you know, that field of study that you're in, does it stand out as something very special? Well, I think it stands out for its sort of political mission to sort of open up Ireland on the one hand, so this intellectual drive it had, and then it also, I think, is really important um, for the literature. And so especially that's the, the perspective I wanted to look at in, in the project um, I'm involved with, analysing the short fiction it published and the kind of short story of Whelan sought to promote. The, he really wanted to forge mm. a tradition of the Irish short story and he had very specific ideas what the, the tradition should look like. I suppose, Anne, you know, we often hear when we hear about, oh, the Irish and the short story and there's this immediate leap to, oh, that comes from the oral tradition and the storytelling and the Shanachy and that side of things. And obviously, I think that tradition is there as, as one source point. How important do you think 
O'Fuelan and, and the Bell and that period was in the formation of what we think of as the contemporary Irish short story. Well, yeah, you just have to look at the stinging fly and see how important it is and remains, mm. you know, issue by issue. And the ability of a magazine to collect energy, to be eclectic, to re- take risks um, all on a seemingly sort of not very important scale. So what you're left with are amazing nuggets after time has rinsed through about the, the contents of these magazines. And I think that's going to be the case in 20 years time for the stinging fly or 40 years time for the stinging mm. fly. Um, and it is, they they collect an energy and they collect a forward, a sense of forward movement. Um, and they seem to be kind of moving. Mm. They're not heavy objects. They're not history minded magazines. And can you see, you know, when you look at the, some of the great writers in the Bell, and specifically, I suppose, at some of the stories in this new collection that contemporary writers have responded to, can you see how the those original writers of the mid-20th century period have influenced you and others, contemporary Irish writers? Well, I'm just blasted through by nostalgia. I'm just looking at reading Janie Mary by James Plunkett and I'm back being 10 years old. Christine Dwyer Hickey, who read it at 10 years old, were kind of contemporaries, says that she fainted at the end of this little fable, a kind of little Dickensian fable about poverty, which is up there with the little match girl. So, um yeah, and then I wonder, is it just me? Is it just me? But you know, I think, you know, a lot of these pieces have hit people both, mm. you know, through their schooling or just one place or another. And you're back with these voices and these accents and just this little kind of gathering of something that they have on the page, which contains so much texture. So, um, yeah, it is it is a very living object, actually, this book mm. to put the contemporary and the past together. And, and when it came to choosing and, and to assigning the pieces, I suppose, because each contemporary writer has a piece that they we see printed in the journal, in the, in the Stinging Fly now, and then the writers, the contemporary writers respond to them. Did, did you and your fellow editor have to painstakingly go through all of the issues of the bell and kind of make a short list and say to Anne, look, here's a half a dozen. Will you have a look at them? How did that work? Well, How we, did you go we, about it? We have actually gone through all the short stories in the bell, uh, Phyllis and I, who've been working on that project. But we then we made a selection of the writers we thought really should go in. And we, of mm. course, discussed it with Declan as well. As um, Declan made of the Stinging Fire. Of the Stinging Fire, yes. Um, and then he mostly sort of paired the contemporary writers to the... Um, to the mid twentieth century writers, um, some for obvious reasons. Twenty first century, okay. Twenty <laughs> first century. No, 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 no the twentieth century for a very long time. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so the bell writers with the stinging fly writers that makes it easier. Yeah, mid, um, I'm, I'm using contemporary. It's so much easier than putting a century on it. On yes, it's a very gentlemanly approach. <laughs> so when when Elke I came along to you with the man who invented sin by Sean O'Fallon, was it a story with which you were familiar? Uh, in in old in in previous times, I, I'm not sure <laughs> where it was collected. Elke, was it collected outside, anthologised outside of the Bell? I it, was col- it was put in one of his collections. In one of yes. his collections. No, it didn't actually sing to me from of 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 times of old. I mean, I'm slightly intrigued by Ophelan going back to him. Yeah, you know, lovers of the lake, the trout, which we had for leaving mm-hmm. search, feed yeah. my lambs. These, when I go back, when I look at them again, they they they. Um, 
I, I wonder why they're not more current, actually, why he's not more uh, mm. known and published. He was such a thing of the time. He had a kind of kind of feeling that he wanted to be cosmopolitan. He wanted to be intelligent. He wanted Irishness and cleverness to be of a piece. He wrote, you know, in the, I was looking at The Lovers of the Lake, which he wrote about affairs like Frank O'Connor did mm. a lot. But he kind of moved a bit further than O'Connor ever did. He was less sentimental and he was more realistic in some ways in his uh, depictions. And this is 1940s Ireland. Yeah, where, it was you very said, shocking. Yeah. I mean, he went uh, almost, you might say, behind the bedroom door. But there's a, a story, Lovers of the Lake, where, where people are having an affair and they go to Loch Derg. And the, the conflict is very radically there between church and the realities of a non-divorce culture. Um, but he mentions things like Pui Fousse. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you just think, looking at it, nobody drank Pui Fousse back in the day. So when he, he kind of confuses cosmopolitanism and Europeanism, you know, there is a tincture mm. of snobbery in there as well. Yeah. You say, who exactly are you writing about? And the middle classes were a bit sort of neglected. So it's good to see um, them back again here in the, in this with yeah, people they, like Val Mulkerns. Mary Beckett is a great writer who hasn't seen um, a lot of mm. uh, coverage that, but tell me a little bit more about the Afuelan story that you did respond to this, that the man yeah. who invented sin. It's, I, I was saying to you before we came to her, I find this story quite sad in many ways. Yeah, it's about an Irish college uh, which is full of uh, uh, not nuns and priests, but, but nuns and monks. I suspect he meant brothers. And they're learning how to um, speak Irish in order to teach mm. their slum. Again, very Afuelan word oh, yeah. to say slum. You know, other people might be more tactful about the poverty of the uh, of their their pupils and anyway they, they have a great time and the writer who is a kind of little bit aloof uh, meets them meets two of the, the priests further down in life and they have forgotten this very romantic interesting fun encounter like kids going to the Gael Yeah it, it really sounds like it's really having the secondary school and Sister Magdalena Sister Chrysostom Brother Virgi- Vir- 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 Virgilius and Brother Magellan who who are then called Maggie, Sissy, Jelly and Jilly. Yes. It, and it's just, I mean, you really get to know this, these four, this quartet. And, and you really, you know, there's clear attraction between yes. them or certainly, a, a, you know, a meeting of minds. How did you respond to that then? Your response is quite interesting in and of Well, itself. first of all, I, I love the idea of these people learning Irish way back in the day. And it did remind me, I mean, it just... It, it, it chimed with a certain strand of my family, which were very much Irish minded. Um, my grandparents met at an Irish summer school, like these priests and nuns. Um, and they met, the Irish summer school was started by a, a priest who was, in fact, my grandfather's brother. So there were a lot of priests and nuns in that family. There was a lot of talking Irish. And, it, mm. and there was romance. I thought, I haven't seen this. It's true to my heritage. I haven't seen this before. I might as well write about it. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it mean, and, and you go through that whole thing and you make this very <laughs> strong point that uh, the presence of another language kind of opens up the possibility for romance in both your own family life yes. uh, and in this story of Sean of Whelan. Yes, uh, falling in love over the Tishel Ginnadach is, <laughs> is actually possible, but um, but actually moving into other languages as well. I don't know what's, what what aristocrats said, the best way to learn French is to have a French mistress, but it, it, it it's the same kind of feeling of being out of your own 
uh, place mm. and all things are possible. And also the idea of speaking another language to somebody in public, as it were, opens all kinds of ideas that you could be saying anything at all. So it's, it, 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 for me, contains a kind of romance and the potential for transgression, yeah. slight nice transgression. Well, I mean, as well. who, who, uh, who among several people, who among all of us hasn't been on a foreign holiday and used a little bit of Irish, no matter how small your Irish is, exactly, to talk about somebody. Exactly, or learned how to say I love you in at least three <laughs> different languages before the age of 18. That was an ambition and yeah. it's not a bad one. And was it, was it a, a fulfilled ambition? Oh, well, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Can't be telling me it was an ambition. Did you manage to fulfil it? There, there are languages in which it doesn't exist, so I did run out of options. <laughs> yeah, talk about not answering a question. Uh, Elka, um, I mean, Anne's response, it does, it's a very contemporary response, obviously, because it's happened when she read the, the, the story in recent times, but it kind of has a, has a harking back within it as well. Were you surprised at, in, in fact, the way many of the stories have this very contemporary feel to them? Because some of the, the issues of church and state, which are in, you heard the story that you responded to, Anne, are there across several of the stories, in fact. Yeah, it's true. Um, and, and I think it's great with these Sting and Fly writers, you know, forming a bridge to the contemporary reader. But some stories actually don't need that bridge even. And, and they speak to us um, as, as they are. Um, yeah, I, I particularly, for instance, like the story, uh, A Story with a Pattern by Mary Levin, because mm. it's gotten a kind of a mansplainer avant la lettre. I mean, she wouldn't call it like that, but there is this, she meets a man at a party and he will tell her exactly that the stories she's writing are no good. Um, they have no plots. They they have no clear ending. They're, they're, nothing much happens. And so he will tell her uh, how stories need to get written. And so it's, it's a great a story. Surely not a contemporary experience, that one, Anne, is it? <laughs> They don't do it to me, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have thought so. But why did I? You know, the bell. I remember having a, a little a, a book of it myself. It was a kind of collection. I don't know when it was published. At some point in the seventies or eighties, mm-hmm. I'm guessing, and it was a collection of essays and stories from the bell. And it was they were, they were absolutely brilliant. Why did it fold? I mean, did, did journals kind of have a, a lifespan, and that's it? I think so. I mean, there, there were financial problems, obviously, but um, somebody also said at the time the bell died of boredom. So I think it was just sort of it, it had run its course and there were other writers turning to other mm. magazines, right. which were considered more hip and more contemporary. And, and probably more. paid more. <laughs> Might have done as well. Yeah. It's, finances are always kind of, I suppose, that, that it's very hard to make these things work on that level, I guess. Oh, uh, y- y- th- this was a time when the dollar was king. So if Frank O'Connor could publish in The New Yorker, mm-hmm. that's exactly mm-hmm. where he'd go, you know. But they were, they were also kind of embattled over censorship. As yeah, well, I was going to ask they? about the censorship side of things, um, how important and how problematic that was in that period. Even the story that Anne responded to, you know, this idea that it kind of half suggests that there was something going on between two monks and two nuns. Mm. I kind of think that that Ophelon got a bit t- tired already, that he was losing the battle one way mm. or the other, which was to stop looking west and start looking east towards Europe. Yeah. And actually, we're still losing that battle in in. <laughs> In, in literary life as well, if you see how much springs from the West of Ireland culture, yeah. even even the Banshees of Inishirin or whatever you're having, you know, it's a very strong mythology. And and so what role did censorship play, do you think, Alka, in, the, the, I suppose, the demise of the bell eventually? 
Well, I, not not really, I think, because the bell periodicals didn't get censored. I mean, they didn't get banned um, because, of course, when they were published and sold, it was all over and you couldn't sort of um, destroy all the copies of, of the book or something. There was wartime censorship, but that mm. was of a different kind. But Ophelan was very outspoken against censorship. He didn't object to it in principle, I think, but he objected to the the use it, that was being made of it, like mm. Kate O'Brien's novels being banned and so on. He was very vocal yeah. in his objection to that in his editorials. Oh, well, it's a fascinating set of stories that you've given us in this. And I love the fact that one is the bell ringing the sound and this mm-hmm. one is a torch shining light on something. I like that kind of connection across the across the two titles of the anthologies. Uh, and thanks to Anne Enright and Elkid Hoker from coming into us this evening. The writer's torch reading stories from the bell is published by the Stingy Fly Press. 18 short stories and all selected from the Bell Literary Journal which was published as I said between 1940 and 1954. 18 responses then by contemporary Irish writers. Full details on the anthology on stingingfly.org. Sad news for music fans broke at the weekend when the death was announced of Tom Verlaine, frontman of the iconic American punk band Television. The band was an essential part of the legendary New York underground punk scene in the late 1970s and their 1977 debut album Marquee Moon is hailed to this day as one of the great pieces of work to emerge from that era. Television were dissolved after a couple of albums but Tom Verlaine released a further eight solo albums collaborating with artists like David Bowie, Patti Smith and his influence as an artist particularly as a guitarist I suppose is clear in the work of bands like U2, R.E.M. and many others. Let's go back to 1977 though now we're back into the 20th century we travel and take a listen to the title track from that television television debut, Marquee Moon. her debut feature film You Resemble Me the writer and director Dina Amer reconstructs the story of Hasna Eitbul Hassan the woman dubbed France's first female suicide bomber she died in an explosion shortly after the Paris attacks of November 2015 Dina Amer was working in Paris at the time as a journalist for Vice Media and saw first hand the way Hasna's story was told retold and rearranged this inspired her to delve deeper her film interrogates childhood trauma, family acceptance and identity and the role that the media plays in the reporting of these stories. You Resemble Me was part of the official selection at the Venice Film Festival and it was produced by Spike Lee, Spike Jones, and Riz Hamed. I'm delighted to be joined uh, on Arena by Dina Amer this evening. Dina, maybe first of all you would, you would tell me how you became aware of Hassan al Bulhassan. Uh, thank you for having me. I, I first got a, you know, was put into contact with the story of Hassan because I was at the scene in Saint Denis, uh, in France, shortly after a bomb went off, uh, when the police raid was closing in on Hassan and her cousin, who was the mastermind of the Paris attacks. Um, and I reported just like every other news outlet that Hassan was the first female suicide bomber, and that was fake news. I felt so guilty about perpetuating this fake headline that I went to go find her mother. And her mother had turned away every 
journalist or a camera that approached her door, but let me in because she believed that I resembled her daughter. And so everything really sprung from this very unlikely point of resemblance between myself and this woman who had been demonized and, and, and falsely called, you know, hmm. falsely crowned uh, the, the first female suicide bomber of Europe. Uh, and there was there was something that happened specifically at the scene that particular night that I think haunted you for quite a long time. What words did you hear Hasna shouting from the window? There was a viral video that was captured of her on the balcony as the police raid was closing in and she was screaming, help, please, I want to jump. Um, and you could hear a police officer yell back, where's your boyfriend? To which she said, she screamed, He's not my boyfriend. And then the bomb went off. And uh, and that video became really crucial in, in painting this picture that there is, she was actually in the gray. She was trying to leave. And then after, when the police actually surveyed the apartment fully, they, they concluded that she could not have possibly set off the bomb. It was someone else. And yet that headline had traveled the world. And not only that, you know, the, the news was so sensational and fictitious that they they um, published a picture of her estranged sister, Miriam, and they called Miriam Hasna, and 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 they pulled in another woman's another woman's face who was Moroccan, and also called her Hasna. So according to the media, there were three different faces for Hasna under a fake headline called, you know, Europe's first female suicide bomber. So essentially, I had to make a fiction film in order to bring truth to the the news narrative, which was deeply fictitious and 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 problematic. And, and it's interesting as a journalist that you would say you had to go to fiction to get to the truth. What what would have stopped telling it as a uh, as a piece of reportage? How why would that not have worked to tell the story? You know, I I, I feel like I'm a recovering journalist. I you know grew up loving Christian Amanpour and Barbara Walters, and 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 I still I think my the the. The journalist in me is very much, you know, allowed me to access the story as a filmmaker because I, I, I still believe if you don't go, you don't know, right? And my connection to human stories is still through by like immersing myself in the truth. And I did over 360 hours of interviews with the real family and her community. And it took me years to make this film, like, because I really wanted, I knew it was, it was sacred ground. People had died and I couldn't, I, I couldn't claim to express anything unless I really had, had, had kind of like, doused myself in, in the reality of her story. But straightforward reportage for me personally um, is lacking intimacy to Hasna, who's no longer with us. And I wanted people, I wanted the audience to step into her shoes and to be on her skin and to feel her fragility and to feel her, to see themselves in her. And only through the power of cinema do you really get that body swapping mechanism. Um, and, and, and that's why I, I love film because I think film is transformative. You have the, the breath and the time to really connect to someone, uh, to a character and to become them and and to, to understand, to, to live in their gray. And unfortunately, I think personally in the news, things are a lot more black and white and sometimes even sensationalized and fictitious as we saw in the reporting of Hasna. But, but you keep saying that it was fictitious reporting. Don't you think that the, the journalists who reported did due diligence and did try to get to the facts as well? Absolutely, but there, there still is a, in my opinion, as a as a Muslim, you know, Egyptian American woman, there's a grave uh, crime that I think the Western media committed in propagating this scary, you know, war on terror headline that traveled the world and personally put my life at in danger as a Muslim woman in the world, and and, and it made me and you know. Uh, 
a billion other people walk the walk the world feeling afraid because I think the media really perpetuated a very dangerous narrative that was that was that felt very reductionist, sensationalized, and and was like fear mongering. So I, you know, it's interesting because you know, in in a million years, I never thought I would make a film about terrorism or about a woman who was like falsely accused as being a terrorist. But this story chose me and. You know, uh, growing up, even though I was probably the most person to resent someone who was, quote unquote, a Muslim terrorist because they like affected my my identity and my reality. When I when I spent time in, you know, at, at Rikers, which is the largest jail in New York, and I spent time with incarcerated men. And I was like, wow, like these men, even if they've committed crimes, they each have a story and actually they point to a systemic failure. Uh, I was like, well, mm. if I can afford these men that compassion, I have to ha I have to look deeper than just the headline for someone like Hassan. When I did, I realized there was a human being there who who thrived, you know, who, who strived to be something more than just, you know, uh, that headline. You know, she could have died actually serving France. She wanted to be a policewoman. She wanted to be mm. a soldier, you know, and she and, and she needed mental health, health support. You know, this is a daughter of France. We don't get to just write yeah. this off as like a Muslim problem. In some ways, to get to the why you made this, you you tell the story in this in this fiction. Then you resemble me that the the story that you tell in your film, and you go right back to Hasna's childhood, and very close relationship, particularly with her younger sister. It's extraordinary that in fact you got two sisters to play the roles of of those two young girls, and in fact their brother to play the role of Hasna's brother Yusuf as well. Yes, yes, I was very fortunate that I I was really blessed with an incre incredible, you know, cast and team and you know, those sisters and their brother had never acted before and and they really stepped up and gave such raw and 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 beautiful performances that were celebrated worldwide. Um and so I mean, I I really I hope that you know, France continues to support their careers because they're real stars. Uh, also, we see Hasna and Mariam, the two sisters, in difficult situations, in difficult family uh, family situations, in dangerous situations on the streets. Uh, you know, almost in in an abandoned way, you could say. On they find themselves on the street. It really that puts our sympathies directly towards Hasna. Well, I'm not trying to create sympathies towards Hasna. I was just trying to tell her story. You know that she was on the street with her sister. You know, she she was she really begged uh, to stay to be sent to the same foster care home as her sister, and they were they were torn apart, and it was a big source of trauma for them. You know, so uh, my role was to do nothing more than to put on the screen the story. You know, um, and I did extensive research. It took me nearly six years to make this film, so I, I definitely didn't like parachute in and then like flimsily like just put something out like I had to make sure that there was a lot of reflection a lot of research a lot of uh, a, a lot of contemplation on what we were saying and how we were saying and I also have to say that you know uh, Hollywood or you know uh, there are other films about people who have done terrible things and and those those films are allowed and celebrated you know um, we have so many films about Jeffrey Dahmer the Jeffrey Dahmer show is number one show on Netflix right now I don't think that filmmaker gets asked all the time but why? They're a terrible person. Why, why did you make this? But yet with Hasna, because she's Muslim and she's a woman and she's brown, there's all this red tape. And like, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to create compassion for her? How dare you? And it's like, no, I'm not trying to create compassion. I'm trying to tell her story because her story matters because it affects our world. It affects our communities. And guess what? There are many Hasnas all over the world. And what more I will say is that 
there, she could have maybe gone down a different paths had we systemically supported someone like her. And, and we have a responsibility to support the other marginalized people who are on edge, mm. who are with us today. And, and as I said, we get the, the three family members playing the younger Hasna and her brother and sister. Then when we get into, uh, I suppose, teenage years and, and uh, heading towards her 20s, perhaps, it, 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 there are three different actresses that play her, including yourself at one point along the way. But talk to me about the, the, the woman who, who plays, I suppose, for the most part, the older Hasna. Yeah, I mean, it was important for me to, to cast. Uh, I cast three women, including myself, because I wanted to highlight that she there was a mental health crisis that she was dealing with. She, you know, she had no idea who she was. That was the core essence of why she radicalized. And the shape shifting and, and code switching in order to find human connection was really what brought that kind of fragility that became dangerous. And and uh, the you know the the main actress who plays Hassan is a is a remarkably talented actress named Mona Suelem, and I think she she did she did a magnificent job. Um, and and so yeah, I was very again I was very very lucky to have such a great ensemble cast. Having made the film, Dina, um, are you any closer to answering that why question that you posed earlier on in our conversation as to why? Hasna found herself in the situation that she found herself. Are you any closer to an answer for that? I I don't think there's a single reason. All I could do was kind of unveil the, all the ingredients that led to this kind of stew that went rotten, you know. But maybe at the core, I feel like there is something quite universal that she was striving for, which was to to find community, purpose, identity, and love and consideration. Those are things we all need as human beings. And when those things are not given, people can make sometimes bad choices and they can, again, grab our attention the worst way possible. So we we need to care for each other. We do. You know, there's a lot of fragility in this world. People are people are struggling mentally, even with you know, even more so with COVID. And, and so I think it's there's a message of that I take away is just like I hope people leave the film with softer hearts being like, whoever you're pointing to it and thinking they're the problem, they're the person to blame, they're evil, they're not even human. Soften your heart, they are a human being, they're a complicated human being maybe, and their accountability is necessary, but if we all wanna kind of live together and live peacefully or strive for peace, we have to we have to offer some, some compassion, you know? Thanks so much for being with us this evening, Dina. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was wonderful. Dina Amir there, the director and writer of You Resemble Me, which goes on release in Irish cinemas this weekend. Formed in Oxfordshire in 1985, Radiohead released their debut album in 1991. In the intervening three decades, they have become one of the most critically acclaimed bands in recorded music history. They hold the record for the most Mercury Prize nominations of any artists with albums such as The Bends, OK Computer, In Rainbows and Kid A. They have experimented with a vast array of styles as well, from alternative rock to electronic music and fusion, from kraut rock to jazz. So, if you were looking for bands ripe for interpretation by a jazz orchestra, Radiohead would probably be high up on that list. I'm joined this evening by Reinhard Dama, who is the artistic director of the Nordpol Orchestra. And on February the 8th, the RTE Concert Orchestra, conducted by Reinhard Dama, will perform the music of Radiohead, specifically Radiohead, a jazz symphony. You might explain to me, first of all, Reinhardt, what Radiohead, a jazz symphony is. Yeah, good evening. Well, it's actually a collection of Radiohead songs 
which was arranged for a big orchestra, but not a classical orchestra, but an orchestra that can relate to jazz. So we found out these songs of Radiohead were this interesting to actually play improvisations on, like like a jazz musician. But we have this Nordpol Orchestra in Holland, and there we developed this this jazz symphony based on songs from Radiohead. So the the Nordpol Orchestra is, in fact, you, you are the founder. You are the founder of that orchestra. You are the artistic director of that orchestra. Uh, yes. it, what specifically is its mission in life? It's a jazz orchestra, jazz only. It's actually an orchestra which plays anything except classical music. So it has classical instruments like violins, violas, cello, trombones, trumpets, saxophones, but also a rhythm section in the orchestra. That's that's the, the base thing. So not to play Mozart or Mahler or Shostakovich, but play, let's say, 20th century, but actually 21st century music as well. So then we're talking indeed jazz music, drum and bass, hip hop. I think in this this century, we have to relate as, as orchestra musicians to electronic instruments as well. So we play actually anything except classical music. And, and one of the things is jazz. So that's what yeah. we did with Radiohead. Which kind of is not quite a full match for the RT Concert Orchestra, but it's something similar. Similar, They do play classical music, but they play all of the other kinds of music that you've spoken about <laughs> there as well. I, I guess that was the attraction for you. Well, yeah, yeah, I checked. I of course also checked their non-classical music guy, and 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 we have not only the RT orchestra in February, but also some jazz soloists mm. joining in. So this is going to be awesome, I think. All right. Um, so the presumption of of many people would be, well, obviously Reinhard Dermer was a huge Radiohead fan from the very start, <laughs> and he couldn't wait to give this music to his orchestra to play. I'm sorry to to disappoint those people because I I was a big jazz fan and during my my jazz studies I, I studied jazz piano I found out that a lot of jazz musicians actually were were thrown to to Radiohead for example jazz pianist Brad Mildow did a nice nice interpretation of exit music from Radiohead and then I found out actually there are more jazz musicians you know, working on this Radiohead music because of the nice rhythmically uh, yeah, let's say complicated mm. rhythms or the, the the chords who are, are stables, stapled on each other. So then I found out actually this is interesting to bring to an orchestra. So have the the classical orchestration with the violins and the trombones and the, and the woodwinds, but also have have a nice space for the jazz soloists. Yeah. And then when I when I really was into into this mission, then I found out well there are so many challenging songs from Radiohead which I actually didn't knew. So I was not a big fan, but now I am. There you go. Well, listen, you, you mentioned Brad Meldow there and Exit Music. So let's listen listen to what you guys, or what you specifically have done with Exit Music. And this is uh, one of the pieces that obviously you will be playing as part of the concert as well. Oh, 
And that is exit music in a version played by the North Pole Orchestra. And joining me this evening is the conductor of that orchestra, Reinhard Dauma, who will be conducting the RT Concert Orchestra in a performance of Radiohead's music in the National Concert Hall on February the 8th. I was really struck, uh, Reinhard, when I listened to exit music in particular, it's probably mm. the most classical track, if you like, when that's got large inverted commas around it, um, on the album. And I heard lots of shades of Philip Glass in there. Yeah. At the end, you'll hear some, some, some big band vibe in a more Latin beat. But the beginning of this, well, actually, you could say, for example, the French composer Ravel, this energy actually... And this kind of orchestration you hear in the beginning of this exit music. But like you said, this is actually the most classical vibe kind of track. When you listen to you or to Paranoid Android, you have more this this rock mm. rocky feel. But when, when you're working through the songs like that, are there some of them that kind of fall onto the jazz orchestra very easily and others that just you fight against that kind of reinterpretation? <laughs> Well, that's a good question, actually, because with two songs, we, we merge together, Pyramid Song and Everything at Its Right Place. And what we are doing there is that we play them separately, but also mm. they're joining each other. And then you get some some rhythmical vibe in a 10-quarter beat, which really fits us and has and in improvisations in itself. But it is a rock kind of feel, just like, I think, Paranoid Android. And, and this exit music is more... Well, the string orchestra giving yeah. it a, a, a classical vibe. And this is actually what we wanted to do, to, to really make it interesting for a for an orchestra, but still have in mind that we have a rhythm section and, and yes, soloists, and a saxophone and a trumpet and a trombone. Let, let's have a listen to Radiohead, a little bit of Radiohead and Paranoid Android, which, of course, is, I suppose, one of their, one of their most popular songs. Let's, uh, let's have a listen to their version, first of all. Radiohead with uh, Paranoid Android, one of the songs that the RTE Concert Orchestra will be playing as part of their concert on Wednesday the 8th of February with Reinhard Dauma of the North Pole Orchestra conducting them on that particular evening. What kind of challenges? It's a big, a long song in and of itself, Paranoid Android, uh, at six and a half minutes or thereabouts. What sort of challenges did it present to you when it came to adapting it for the jazz orchestra, Reinhard? Well, actually, to think of making it not too sweet, not too romantic with the strings, yeah, because we have the string section. It's it's lovely, it's gorgeous, but this song has some some raw elements in it, of course. It also has a, a seven eight beat in it uh, f- further on in the song. So keep this energy from the song, and and, and actually the song without the lyrics, because we're not going to sing it, Tom York won't won't be here. It's it's just the the melody combined with the chords and the rhythm that is interesting enough, and, and bring it to to space for jazz solists, but have it yeah like an orchestra arrangement that is not too Disney like. Yeah, and, and maybe not even not that the song itself is sweet per se, but certainly there's a darkness in in your orchestra yeah. version that that brings out something else in the song. We'll we listen to the opening section of of your version of Paranoid Android as well. 
North Pole Orchestra there with their version of Paranoid Android and that is the version that the RTE Concert Orchestra will be playing at their concert of Radiohead Music on Wednesday the 8th of February. Uh, Reinhard Doma who was involved in the adaptation of these works is with me on the programme this evening. I was really struck by how long it takes the melody to get going in your version (laughs) (laughs) Reinhard as opposed to in the original version itself. So this isn't just about oh let's look at exactly what this music is and give one bit to the trumpet and we'll give the melody to somebody else and we'll give the chords to some other part of the orchestra. Are you totally reimagining these songs? Yeah, well, for example, this Paranoid Android was the first one in the evening. We started and and we thought this energy of building up before bringing the melody would actually fit the song. Also, what we did with, for example, Weird Fishes, it's actually one of the, of the more simple in, in musical tradition simple songs with only a four quarter beat with goes along with only four chords actually so there we had this idea of this meditation kind of ongoing almost minimalistic music but then with this beat and building on more to the Mm. arrangement so in every song we skipped of course the the lyrics and and the vocals and then yeah what what should we what should we bring and how long can you take a melody or take an intro or go with the improvisation, actually? We didn't feel we need to, to stick to the, to the original, no. So it's almost that when you refer to the, the, this album as Radiohead, a jazz symphony, it's almost as, you, as if you're really building across the 10 tracks into one big single performance rather than just versions of the song separately. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And actually, after we did this album, Tom York came out with another song, The Eraser, and, and even Spectre, which they composed Radiohead for the for the James Bond movie Spectre. And with RTE, we actually going to perform these as well as an encore after these 10 tracks. So, right. um, yeah, it's really exciting, I think. I'm going to finish up um, by listening to a little bit of Creep, which is the final song on, on your album, but goes all the way back to Radiohead's debut album, Pablo Honey. Um yeah. I was really struck listening to the lyrics of this song. How you know there's quite a there's quite an uncertainty in it, and I suppose a bit a little bit of self loathing almost in there as well that comes across <laughs> in the lyrics. Yours is a yours is not quite doesn't have that self loathing feel to it. Did you just put the lyrics to the one side and forget about them and just concentrate on what the music suggested to you? Actually, in this song we did, and I also noticed that at some point the guys from radio had said. Well, okay, this may be one of the most famous songs, but we are. This is not the one we are still performing or happy with. And so I got this idea: should we do something totally different, make it more like like sort of a cynical protest kind of thing out of it, and make it really sweet? So, for example, when you hear our version, it starts really quite easy. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I think we. This is a song we did something totally different. Uh, with with the song than than the way they they brought it and I think when you when you listen to the melody and what's happening and we have the trumpet solo in it it's a track itself. Okay, doc. Well, we'll finish up by listening to then your version of Creep, the Radiohead song, and look forward to seeing you and hearing the concert on Wednesday the eighth February. Thanks for being with us this evening, Reinhardt. Yeah, thank you very much.
you go. Quite loungy at the beginning of that uh, version of Creep by Radiohead as performed by the Nordpool Orchestra. Of course, it was Radiohead's big breakthrough hit released in 1992 from their debut album, Pablo Honey, but it does change enormously as it goes on that track. So that is from the 2012 album Radiohead, a jazz symphony by the Nordpool Orchestra and Reinhard Duma, who was talking to be there, the founder and artistic director of that orchestra, will conduct the RT concert orchestra with arrangements from that album on Wednesday, the February the 8th at the National Concert Hall. But since that interview, in fact, since we recorded that, it has sold out completely, that concert. But uh, maybe there'll be returns. Check nch.ie or orchestras.rte.ie for full details about that concert. I'm sure other upcoming events which are selling out very fast as well. But that album, some of you asking about Radiohead, a jazz symphony. Yes, it is available on Spotify and other platforms. So check it out there if you so wish. But that is our lot for this Tuesday evening. Leah Murphy and Amandine Passa-Devine with researchers. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator. Tommy O'Sullivan was on sound. And tonight's programme was produced by Ola McGowan. Back with you tomorrow night, uh, Wednesday, February the 1st, celebrating all things St. Bridget and La Ila Brigia, Eha Morak on Shaw on Glor. In the meantime, I leave you now uh, heading towards news and John Creedon will be with you after that.